if you are parents or maybe grandparents when the internet came out <laughs> and they're just like oh what is this crazy thing blah 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 and all the kids are like great like this is amazing you think that's our point this is our point for stuff I think that if it turns out to be half as good as smart people are saying, I think it's of a, a hundredfold magnitude more drastic. to the Growth Equation Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined as always by my good friend, Brad Stolberg. Brad, what's going on, my man? Things are good over here in Asheville. It is um, really the first week that feels like spring. We had a... Two weeks ago, it was like summer out of nowhere, just brutally hot. Then it got freezing again, all the way down to 20, which for here is pretty cold. But the last couple of days, you wake up, birds are chirping, it's misty outside, High 40s, low 50s, warms up to 70. It's been raining, which I actually really like. It means hopefully it'll be really green. So um, I'm doing well. And then I, I PR'd my back squat and my deadlift again. I'm still at that phase where I'm doing a lot of heavy singles and they just they keep getting better, which they won't forever. So I'm riding that wave and enjoying it. How are you? You know, I'm doing great. And at the beginning of every podcast, I say, how are you doing, my friend? And someone replied on email and said, are you guys really friends? And I, 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 I love that question because Brad and I, we have, yes, first we're really friends, but we have one of those friendships where we can rib on each other. And that's what we do way too much because we talk to each other way too much as well. <laughs> and that's why I love you brought up your back squat there. Or whatever. So you can rib, I, I knew it. So you can rib on me. You were probably thinking like, hmm, maybe I shouldn't rib on Brad because the people, the people think you're being too hard on me, Steve. Actually, it was the other way around. The people were asking. They said Brad is being too hard on Steve. So oh. now I'm just, I'm I'm just leveling the playing field and just saying, you know, Brad. I think you got to re- be really careful about, you know, just putting uh, your your PRs out into the world on this podcast because the dozen or so people who listen to it, you're just getting all that external validation, Brad. You should just be alone in your garage, you know, not telling anyone you PR'd. That's the, that's the good thing to do. But we also got that feedback about a year ago when people said, Steve asks Brad how he's doing and Brad always just says, I'm good. And then we get into the show. But we record at the same time every week, and it's always after I go to the gym. So that's what's on my mind. I will say I had a very humbling experience last night. My best friend in the world, Justin's in town. And we were at that stage of the day. We were just kind of zoning out, not yet ready to go to sleep, but could hardly write a sentence, let alone uh, you know have a meaningful conversation. So we got to watching the Powerlifting World Championships. And... Um, that stuff gets me every time because I love mastery. I'm like, huh, like, I wonder what it would be like to compete. So I looked at the Hendersonville powerlifting annual meet. And while geographically I'm in the neighborhood of Hendersonville, I am nowhere in the neighborhood of being competitive in the Western North Carolina powerlifting scene. So I feel very humbled right now about my back squat. 
You know, that makes me feel good. I'm glad you had that dose of perspective from Justin, who's there to keep us humble. Um, and, you know, it's okay. I, I'll, I'll, I'll say on my end, I went to the track the other day because it was a weekend and I was like, oh, I should do something hard. And we have a junior high track that's about a mile from my house. So I jogged to it and I did some 200s and I was humbled as well because I didn't run that fast. And I used to run fast. So I've got to keep that in my mind of like, you know what? It's okay. It's okay to be slow, Steve. Accept it. Yeah. I wonder what the right distance for us to race each other where the challenge is fair. Like a 10-yard dash? Yeah, it's got to be really, really... uh, Well, you know, it, it depends. Are we using blocks or not? Because the shorter we go... I think it's probably be a more interesting competition, but it also will depend on like luck of reaction and ability to utilize blocks or a three point stance, which is more mechanical. Um, What's your best 100? I was never that fast, but in high school solely for the reason of we had a really good football coach and part of what made him good is he wanted everyone to play multiple sports. Uh, So I ran track. And I was never that fast. I, I was like an 11.4 or an 11.3 100 person, but I was a 4.740. So that's why I go down to the shorter distances. So my 40 time was pretty good, but my 100 time was just kind of average. Uh, yeah, 40 times are useless, so I don't put much stock into them. Um, I ran, I never ran 100 in a competition, but I would run 11.1, 11.2 whenever we do just flat out 100 sprints in practice. Oh, it could so, be close. I think what would end up happening is I would tear my proximal hamstring if we did this. So we probably shouldn't do it. Oh, I would definitely tear something. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's a, this is why I sprint up a hill, Brad, because I can't go that fast. And that makes it where I can sprint without tearing something. Lesson learned for those aging. If you want to stay fast and want to do something explosive, just find a steep hill and sprint up it where you get the effort, but you're not going that fast. So you're not going to tear something. And one other thing before we get into today's main topic on some, uh, some sprint work. So we talked about this topic a little while ago, the, the fad, the fame, the future cold plunging and the goalposts always move on this. So I'd like to think as a result of some of our commentary on the internet, because it gets passed around quite a bit, the uh, cold plunge evangelists have moved the goalpost again. So now not only are we not cold plunging for metabolic health, which is where this started, we're now no longer cold plunging after workouts because Steve and I continue to beat that same drum of that really doesn't make sense unless you're an athlete that needs to immediately feel fresh. So now people are saying you got to cold plunge before you work out. And, um, as Steve said, because we are really friends when we were talking on the phone last night, the only instance that, that makes sense is like if you're running an ultra marathon in the Sahara and you need to try to cool your core body temperature. But seriously, hopping in a freezing cold bath of water before then trying to train hard is a recipe for disaster in terms of musculoskeletal health. So we'll see where the goalposts move next week. But for now, if you're going to cold plunge, don't do it because it's going to make you better. Do it because you like it. And um, 
also, unless you're really a pro athlete or something, who cares if it shunts your adaptation to your workout? If you like it, just do it. So, so, so what you're saying here, Brad, is before our 10-yard dash, we need to first hop in the cold plunge and then immediately get out down in the blocks and then sprint so that we can just be injured and done no, no, for no, no, a no, long no. time. Here's the deal. By, and I need to be honest with, with uh, the listeners of the podcast. So I'm... I'm done. My experiment didn't last a month. I said I was going to take cold showers for a month because I'm often very critical and I I wanted to get that N equals one experience. And I cut it off after about six days, to be honest. Here's why. I don't like it. I've proven to myself that I can do it. The same thing happens. I hyperventilate for a little and then I calm my breathing. Then I turn the water up and that feels great when you turn the water up, like you get the, the tingles, you know, it's like, uh, we used to go to a hot tub in the winter and you jump into the snow and jump back in. It's a very good feeling. Um, and then I'd shiver for a little bit after cause I don't like being cold. And then the rest of my day would basically be the same, but I am 36. I've got two lovely kids and, um, I would rather just roll out of bed slowly and shuffle to the coffee maker and light some incense and have a nice slow morning before my kids wake up and then it's game on anyways, you know, like harder than a cold plunge is getting two kids out the door and ready for the day. So, um, it's purely an enjoyment thing. So I didn't enjoy it. I did find it hard, but I don't think that I need another hard arbitrary thing in my life in the morning if I'd rather make coffee. So I think that my optimal morning routine is stumble out of bed to the coffee pot, try to, muster the energy and the cognition to properly make coffee, get that coffee going while the coffee is burning, light some incense because of course I live in Asheville and then just wait for that coffee to get ready and take about 30, 30 minutes to come online for the day. Um, it's what I prefer. What can I say? You probably get a, a bigger hit of adrenaline from when the chaos of taking care of two kids commences. So you know, my, my morning routine while we're on it has changed. It's a little different now with my wife being pregnant. Uh, one, she suffers from, um, you know, uh, nausea and, and potential vomiting if she doesn't eat when she gets right up, you know, when she wakes up, which is a normal pregnancy thing. So my morning routine is literally as soon as I wake up or more likely my wife wakes up, I have to like scramble out of bed, run to the pantry, get some applesauce and bring it up. So my wife doesn't, you know, puke. So you want to talk about a hit of adrenaline? That's it. Y'all are doing it wrong. You got to have like saltine crackers in the bedroom. She's she's like very particular on the stuff she likes, which is why we have the... um, why she goes applesauce, but the, here's the why we don't keep the food in the bedroom thing is because we have this this dog named Willie who is the master at finding any sort of uh, food. And unfortunately, Willie, well, Willie for much of his life has been able to eat anything and get away with it. And he's done that, but he had a hard time recently where he got into some food that... He shouldn't have, and then suffered a lot of consequences. He's okay now, but now we're like extra vigilant on any food outside of the pantry. 
Yeah, so it goes. All right. Well, um, I had one other thing that I was going to say, which is the there's a real trade-off here, and, and I share this with other parents. This is gender neutral. I've had this conversation with those that identify as men, women, and everything in between. You really only have one hiding place in the morning, and that's the bathroom. It's the only place that you can get some peace and quiet, and I'm convinced that's why people start getting hemorrhoids between 30 and 40 is because everyone's just hiding in the bathroom. So it'll be interesting to see how that goes for you, Steve. Okay. The well, parents out there know exactly what I'm talking about. You need some yeah. peace and quiet in the morning. You just got, got to hide in the bathroom. I don't even now, sit on the pot anymore because I care about my rectal health. I just go in there and hide. You know, I'm sorry if Brad's wife, Caitlin, is listening. This is what Brad is doing. He's just hiding away. But anyways, let's let's get let's go from bathroom health and hiding to what we're going to talk about today, which is kind of the health of our future work. And I know we're going to talk about AI and the impact it has personally or potentially personally on the work that Brad and I do, which is mostly social media and uh, more so writing. And I know there's been a lot of talk and hype around AI and blah, blah, blah. We're not here to debate if it's going to destroy the world or not. But I think take a more kind of nuanced take on, well, how are we approaching it as people who have skin in the game in areas where it impact? And what do we think? Uh, what do we think it'll look like? So before we dive in, just a reminder, the best way to support our work and help keep this podcast 100% sponsorship ad-free is twofold. You can purchase our books, Do Hard Things, Steve's Latest, The Practice of Groundedness, that's mine. They're available on Amazon, at your local bookstore, Barnes & Nobles, Audio, Kindle, you name it, wherever you get your books. The second thing you can do is subscribe to our Patreon at www.patreon.com backslash thegrowthequation where for as little as $5 a month, you get all kinds of great insider stuff, including a monthly live book club, a quarterly mastermind group, exclusive guides to resilience and sustainable excellence, signed copies of our books whenever they come out. We've got a new one this fall. So head over to Patreon, www.patreon.com backslash the growth equation and, uh, and check that out. So like Steve said, artificial intelligence, it's all the buzz. Everyone's talking about it. Let's start with my biggest concern for artificial intelligence, and it's going to pick up a thread that Steve and I pull on quite a bit on this podcast and in our writing, which is the attention economy. And we define that, I think pretty similar to the, the, the common definition of the attention economy, which is the monetization of people's attention. So it once started out as billboards on a road, then it became banner ads, aka billboards on websites. And now it is largely social media. And my biggest concern is that the first couple generations of AI are already proving to be very good at scraping tons of existing information, figuring out how to package it in a way that is either as good or better based on a prompt that's given to it. So where I think all this is going to go is somebody saying the equivalent of, 
hey, Sydney, or hey, Bingbot, I want you to take these nine threads on productivity or routines or health or you name it and write me something that's going to go viral on Twitter. Or, hey, Bingbot, I want to make a viral Instagram post on aging. And the more people that do this, first off, I think these posts will perform really well because I think AI will get good at this. And my fear is that it's just going to be like fentanyl for the attention economy. Like we kind of already know what hooks people in and AI is going to be able to like do it in the most scientific, you know, preying on our most base dopamine catastrophizing parts of our brain and do it really well. And, um, our attention economy situation is already pretty precarious. And I'm just worried about the deluge of AI generated content that we're about to see. I agree. I think it's going to be a huge problem in terms of that. I mean, essentially what we've done is we've lowered the bar <laughs> where at least in the past, and we're guilty of this as well, but it's like thread bros on social media had to at least do a little bit of work. We're like, okay, I got to read, you know, at minimum a Wikipedia article for some of the, you know, worst ones, but something like that. Well, now that barrier to entry is lower, right? So as long as you understand like the prompting, then you're going to be able to just your productivity on these kind of threads or posts or even using AI images, which is getting better and better for Instagram, like that's going to go through the roof. So what you're going to do is uh, an increased number of people who kind of use this to try and gain traction and marketing and all of that status in the online attention economy world, which is going to be, it's just going to be strange. I think like, I think any of these things like shift the value because like the value of like that specific knowledge or expertise kind of goes down a little bit in one ways because the barrier to entry is, is smaller because AI can just tell you and do it anyways. But I think in other ways it, 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 will distinguish and incentivize the human component. And the way, I, the way I like to think about this is that I'm going to use the running analogy as always, but I think AI will get really good at writing a schedule for training, perhaps even better than me or anybody else with expertise because it can consider a bunch of stuff, but I don't think it'll be better at coaching Right. And I think you see that because like the the on hand like application of it takes a human component and nuance to it, I'd argue, even with good data. Um, and I think you'll see the same in terms of like the social media attention economy as like to get good enough, like threads, tweets, Instagrams, like everybody can do that. But to get to, okay, the so what application, I think that'll always be a human component. I also think that, and this is not an original thought, um, I've read a couple of takes that that circle around this, the notion of provenance will be really important. So you think about art and like it's very easy to get a replica of a certain painting, which is why provenance is so important in art. You know, where did it originally come from? And is this the one that was actually crafted by so-and-so? Um, 
And I think that that's going to be important, not for like art and collectibles, but just for our ability to know if we're talking to a robot or a person in a lot of these instances. And to me, that's where things just get overwhelming and weird. Um, Cause I think we're going to have like three categories of people on the internet. One are not going to be people. They're going to be AIs. Two are going to be people that act like AIs. <laughs> and then three are going to be people. And um, it's just going to be a very bizarre world to, to navigate. Um, at least I think so. I don't dread the, the paperclip scenario, right? The, the infamous hypothetical where someone tells an AI to do everything they can to make a paperclip. And then the AI starts like convincing humans to kill each other so that it's easier and there's less of a population. So there's more money available for producing paperclips or whatever that I'm not as worried about. Maybe I should be, but I really think that the biggest detriment is just going to be, um, the amount of hyper-processing of data that can guide us into different directions and, and ultimately take advantage of our attention because that is the, the easiest thing in the near term for AI to monetize. I think another way that it is very similar that things could go awry is like you could imagine whether it's the Donald Trump campaign or the Joe Biden campaign, a campaign basically telling AI and hey, these are our nine accounts. Go make sure that we win the election based on social media posts. Are we there yet? No. Am I skeptical that we'll ever get there? Yes. But have enough really smart people that think about this and know a million times more than me um, concerned about those situations? Very. Yeah, I think it, I, I, I'd agree. I mean, I think that's probably the more concerning aspect to me. I mean, let's, let's get this like into our wheelhouse of, of what we do, like from a writing standpoint. So from a book writing standpoint, what do you think happens? Like, because like, to me, it's, it's, I think I'm going to partially answer this and then let it turn it over to you. But like, you know how, if you go on Amazon and you search like groundedness or do hard things, there's all these like crappy, like, you know, summary, blah, 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 et cetera. I, I think what you're going to see is a lot like those are going to get better and better and more, well, maybe not original, but more directed and and good. And you're going to see like a deluge of books that are written by AI that get better and better on very, I would call them like controlled topics where we know a lot about. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I think of it in a couple of ways, right? And I, I do not think like an engineer. So I have struggled to even like try to use the mid journey or stable diffusion or like the, what was the one that you sent me, Steve, the image generator? Yeah. I forget what one it was, but one of those. Yeah. So I'm just not good at asking prompts and I haven't spent time trying to get good. It's not how my brain works. So I haven't experimented and and I think you've maybe experimented a little bit more. So you might tell me if the AI can already do this or if it's around the corner or if it's really far off, but not even the knockoffs, but couldn't someone just say, feed, take dear AI, read, do hard things by Steve Magnus, the practice of groundedness by Brad Stahlberg, uh, deep work by Cal Newport, how to change by Katie Milkman and write a book that combines insights from all of them on how to be fulfilled and high performing. 
Yeah, I think we'll get to that point. Absolutely. That's going to be weird. Yeah. Or um, I would never do this because I like to hold myself to some standards and ethics, but hey, AI, here's my transcript for, or excuse me, here's my manuscript for a book. Now write it in the style of George Saunders. <laughs> Pretty freaky, right? Or pick your favorite writer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, or dear AI, here's my draft. Take um, Michael Lewis, Malcolm Gladwell, and George Saunders and Leslie Jameson and combine their styles into something unique and rewrite my draft in that style. Pretty yeah. freaky. No, I mean, that's that's why we're having this conversation, because I do think that we'll get to a point where it's pretty dang good. And even now, like I've played around with it a little bit. Um, you could do stuff where it gets, again, not great, but like a reasonable facsimile of like, oh, like, oh, I might write something in that style. Right. Or whoever, whatever writer you feed into it, especially if you feed multiple prompts to prompt it, it's like it gets it's decent enough. Right. And I think what that means is decent enough right now means whenever in the future at some point, it's going to get pretty dang good at it. Um, so, again, like to me, that that pushes on a couple things is, well, does that push us to more instead of we'll call it informational books that kind of summarize things to more idea books that say, this is like a unique idea I have about something that is a combination of other things, but like a unique application of things. And we're going to get wax philosophical on this idea versus like, you know, whatever, here's the way to perform better X, Y, Z. But even the wax philosophical on this idea, my understanding is that um, like the generative AI is well on its way to getting there, to like predicting what the next new thing is, or to being able to combine five existing books and pull out a novel insight. I don't know how true that is. I don't know how hyped up that is. Um, I'm just overwhelmed by all of it. Like I'm too overwhelmed to have an opinion. So here's, here's my, here's one I want to go with this is, do you think this is what it felt like a little bit for, I mean, the analogy I'll give is like, if you are parents or maybe grandparents when the internet came out <laughs> and they're just like, Oh, what is this crazy thing? Blah, blah, blah. And all the kids are like, great. Like, this is amazing. Blah, blah, blah. Do you think that's our point? This is our point for stuff. I think that if it turns out to be half as good as smart people are saying, I think it's of a, a hundredfold magnitude more drastic. Because I can describe the internet. My parents and grandparents might have no idea how to use it, but I could say it's a thing on your computer where you can get all kinds of information and you can talk to people and send people notes. And that's kind of how it started out, right? Whereas this, you're basically saying is... It's something that you can ask pretty much anything and it will give you a really good answer, often better than what a human could do, particularly in you know a 20-minute time period. Um, to me, those are two very different things. Now, that's if it, if it fulfills its promise of really being generative and, and good. Yeah. That's why I, like, I can't even begin to wrap 
my right, my mind around it. Cause like, there's, if, again, there's not, if it can combine multiple things, then there's yeah. not even value on originality. Cause then it can be original, right? It's one thing to say, Hey, Bing, um, go write me a book that's like peak performance and do it in a way where it's not plagiarizing anyone. That's already really freaky. But then if it's like, go take peak performance, passion paradox, the practice of groundedness, do hard things, and then write the next book in the Brad and Steve umbrella. I mean, and if it can truly do that in like an hour, that is mind blowing revolution of just how the world's going to work. Yeah, no, I mean, I think you're right. And I think that's why I'm struggling to grasp at it because like the ramifications are just unknown. I mean, yeah. And I think that the, the, the one thing that I hold on to, cause I don't want to face how overwhelmed I am is like, there's no way it's going to get this good. Cause that gets back to the, let's not take winning an election because that's, there's a lot of complexity involved, but let's take something that's a little bit less complex. Growing social media. Are we already at a point where if we really knew how to use it or we had like inside access or pay for access, you could just give the AI your Twitter handle and say, hey, AI, you know, given what's happening on Twitter, only tweet about these three topics, but just do everything it takes to grow my Twitter platform like crazy. That's the stuff that I think the AI is going to be great at because like that's just scraping. It's all there and it will very quickly know what kind of tweets and what format and what length and what time is doing well and just do it for you, which is uh, is very, very interesting. And the more that it, the more that it's creative, the scarier it gets because mechanizing rudimentary tasks is always just how progress has been made. But if we're talking about mechanizing like, novel ideas. That's weird. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, I think, I don't think we're quite there yet, but we're pretty close where, I mean, I've played around with it a lot and you know, this on like, well, let's see what it does on Twitter and like telling it to read my tweet threads and your tweet threads. And then like, you know, crafting some, and it does like a fair job, like already, like it'll do good enough where you would grow substantially if you only tweeted things that it tweeted or told you to based on prompts. Um, and I think that's only going to get better. So I do think there's, there's certain things like that where it's like, you know, to back to your original point, is it going to be AI talking to AI talking to AI on social media? Right. And, and, and part of this, I think is why I'm trying to grasp around it is there's always compensatory effects, meaning mm-hmm. if AI gets really good at writing books or doing stuff or what have you just, and this is where the art analogy comes in. And I think this is important is there will be some compensation in terms of value and status for non AI stuff. Um, I don't know what that looks like or what that means. But I think that there will be like that. I don't know if that'll be a big market, um, but I think it'll be like a shift in like value in terms of significance of like, oh, this is a entirely human created versus like art that is like amplified or what have you. I don't know. I mean, even like so to use use the the 
again, maybe this isn't perfect, but if you look at um, in the movie industry, like if you're making a popular Marvel film, you're going to use all the green screen, whatever junk that you want. If you're making like an art artistic film, you probably would get penalized to a degree if you used like overused on, um, you know, non-real stuff. So I, I don't know. It's weird. That's where I come down. It's weird. Yeah, it is very weird. So the compensatory thing, what what can't AI do is be a human with human emotions and body language and um, like energy and vibes. And I think ultimately that is going to be the stuff that then becomes really important. Um, and perhaps for our work, perhaps our work is going to move a lot more to like small in-person mastermind groups and events and conferences. Um, and, and that'll be where the magic happens, right? Cause it's no different than our books. You know, none of, none of, if anything that we write is so outrageous and novel, then we're lying because we like to stick to the evidence and, uh, evidence moves slowly why do people read our books? Because they're fun, they're entertaining, they're enjoyable, they're um, a lot more likely to inspire you and to teach you and to help you understand than a bulleted list or a scientific journal. But if AI can take a bulleted list in a scientific journal and you feed it a couple manuscripts and then you can tell it to write a book and it does that, well, then guess what? Our books aren't going to be that special. My hope is that that takes 10 years to get that good because then we could write a couple more books before. But at that point, it's going to say, all right, well, then what makes us special? And it's probably the the actual hands-on in the room, again, like the vibe that AI won't be able to replicate. And we're, I think we're being pretty aggressive, but maybe not. That's why I'm so overwhelmed. Every time I say that, I say, but maybe not, because so many smart people are like 10 years, more like two years. And I just find it hard to imagine that you're going to be able to feed a little chat bot the titles of eight books, and then it's going to write something that people actually want to read. Well, I now, think the, it's... That, now, the counter to that, real quick, and then I'll shut up. The counter to that is kind of my understanding of how the most popular nonfiction book of the last decade was written, which is James Clear's Atomic Habits. And James did not use an AI to write his book, but he was really scientific about it in the way that an AI might be. So James knew that he wanted to write about habits and he knows a lot about habits, but then he just spent 10 years in his newsletter testing various framings, testing various topics, asking people what they wanted to learn more about, seeing what tweets did the best. And he ultimately crowdsourced that book or at least like the flow and the topics of it. And there's nothing wrong with that. It was a very novel and original approach to writing a book and it served him really well. And that book's helped a ton of people, but like that took James 10 years and the more that I hear about AI, the more that like, that's what it's going to be really good at. It's going to be able to write atomic habits in an hour. And that's just a weird world to imagine for us. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a good, uh, example and analogy. And I think, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I think the reason we're having this episode and, and stuff is because like, and this conversation is, it's really hard to grasp, you wrap your head around it. And it's really hard to kind of predict 
where this will go in the future and what will the, this impact. And it, you know, it gets to other topics we've talked about a long time on here is, you know, topics like now how many jobs become bullshit jobs because like AI can do all of it, which is another topic. Right. And I think that pushes us into, okay, if so many jobs are now taken by AI, like what do we do with people? Which gets us back to some of the things that we harp on all the time is like we need autonomy, you know, competency, belonging, all those things like significance. Um, and the world's going to change how we've we've kind of become accustomed to this is how you get those things. And uh, that's going to change a little bit. And And I should say for the past hundred, you know, years plus, like how we got most of those things was through work. In producing something. And I think, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say our relationship between work and producing something is about to change drastically. And, And maybe more things will come to look like art. Like that's one other pathway. Yeah. Where you can get replicas that if you don't really know art, like are basically the same as art. Like you get prints and put them on your wall but that's not valued at the same thing as an original work from someone. And that's where provenance becomes really important. Now, not many people care about art like that. Maybe a million in America. I don't know, like one third of a percent. I'm not an expert on the art world, but most people just don't even think about this or care. And maybe that's what ends up happening with books is that instead of 20 to 30 million or whatever the, the survey shows percent of people that read more than, than two books, it's going to go down to like 1 million, but it's going to be like art where like they collect books and they want to know like this book actually came from Brad and Steve's brain, not from the AI. Uh, and then it just shifts into more of that, that model. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, as I said, I could see that. I think there will be a, it's like a new status value add will be the human thing. <laughs> um, but, but no one like, can wrap their mind around this stuff. I was yeah. talking to Caitlin about it last night, who's an attorney. And um, I coached someone that is the head of technology for an, a very large law firm. And his whole world is shifting to trying to figure out AI. And um, the law is something where it actually is really built to do well at because it's all based on precedent. And like, in theory, all the information is out there and the job of an, an attorney is to put it together in a way that makes sense. And if you're in contracts, it makes sense for both parties. If you're in uh, litigation, a way that you know shows that your party is in the right and the other party's in the wrong, but it's really just taking gobs and gobs and gobs of information and making a case. And um, what both, what what my client said is that None of the attorneys really understand what's about to happen, but like he thinks it's going to happen. And then what Caitlin says is like, oh, like it'll just change the work, but it won't fundamentally replace anyone because like it's so specific what we do and like one error is so costly. And I kind of think that's a conversation that we're having. On the one hand, we're like, oh, yeah, it's going to totally change everything. But on the other hand, it's like, but really? Is it going to? Like, there's no way it can do that. And, um, You know, is it closer to crypto and Bitcoin or is it closer to uh, vaccination or sewage and sanitation and the effect it's about to have on the world? 
Yeah, I mean, I think I, I, I think it's at a point now where I feel very strongly that it's not crypto or Bitcoin. Um, but I think we're we're dabbling what we're and maybe this is why it's hard to wrestle with. We're dabbling with, well, how close is it to something that like vaccination that like literally helped extend people's lives like decades because of blah, blah, blah. Um or is it something that's like a, a pretty good improvement? Maybe like the the internet we used is like, hey, this is a massive step up from searching through encyclopedias and calling people on the phone and it will change society. But like, you know, it'll be a, a societal change that will adapt with pretty quickly and, you know, regularly. And I think that's what no one knows right now. And I think the unknown and the, how will society adapt is something that even the the programmers of this stuff, the makers, like have no clue to. Yeah. And a more humble take is that of our, our mutual good friend, Dave Epstein. I was talking to him on the phone and this topic came up recently. And he said that ultimately what he thinks is going to happen is all of these AI companies are just creating problems that then they're going to sell the solution for. So the problem is you don't know if it's real or from a bot. Well, then you pay them for a subscription to the authenticity checker that then tells you if it's real or if it's a bot. Or you don't know if the AI is hallucinating or not. So you pay for the premium model that then runs a reference check to see the degree of accuracy in the book that it just wrote for you. Um, Because those are going to be the two main problems, right? Like, is it right? And especially on stuff of consequence, like it needs to be right. And in cases of human-to-human interaction, are you talking to a robot or a person? Um, and, and Dave's take is just like, those are going to be massive problems, and then they're going to sell us the solution, and um, maybe it'll make things better, maybe it'll make things worse, maybe it'll just be a big waste of time and energy for everyone involved, and who can say? All right. Well, there you go. There's Brad and Steve's take on AI, which is really, we have no freaking clue, but it's... Um, it's going to change something. I'd love to hear listeners. If you're listening and pu- as puzzled as us, send us some emails or messages on, on what you think, how it'll change in your work and impact stuff. And because we're all, I mean, I get it. It's a hot topic in a lot of areas, a lot of experts who can cover it more, but everything I've listened to, everything Brad's listened to is no one really has any freaking clue, but it is going to change something and impact something. So we're going to have to navigate this for, I think, the next couple of years or next part of our life. So it'll be interesting to see how it all folds out. We'll have to listen to this podcast 10 years from now. Yeah, I think I think a feeling of overwhelm is probably um, the most genuine thing that I can describe myself experiencing. And I'm okay with that because like where my mental model is at is I can grasp the potential sizable, enormous shift of this, but I can't really even envision how it's going to play out. It's like that Donald Rumsfeld quote of like unknown unknowns. I feel like there's like a million unknown unknowns about this. And you could say that about anything in the future, which is true, but it also feels like this technology is like really at a threshold and um, just the fact that it can take graduate level courses 
better than 90% of graduate students is, or graduate level exam, excuse me, better than 90% of graduate students is already pretty crazy. And what's crazier is that it went from failing those to doing so well within like two months. So the rate of improvement is just insane. And um, that's a very kind learning environment, an exam, meaning like the facts are out there, you need to go find them and then regurgitate them or put them together. I think that that ship has sailed. AI is going to crush kind learning environments. I think for wicked learning environments where things are changing as we go, to me, that's the ultimate question on how fundamental of a shift is AI going to be. And if AI excels in wicked learning environments, then I think we're looking at a completely new world than what we've grown accustomed to. I'd agree. I think that's a good synopsis. So there you go. Brad and Steve's take on AI, which is confused, overwhelmed. We'll see if we have a job in a couple of years. Um, but thanks so much for listening. AI can't do podcasts yet. So we're there and that's why we're here giving you, you know, giving you the podcast. So maybe that'll become more of our thing. We'll see. But thanks to everybody for listening. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to uh, check out our Patreon group. Uh, group and uh, check out our books, Do Hard Things and The Practice of Groundedness. No, you know that AI will be able to do podcasts. Like, I think it probably already can. We just don't know how to prompt it or the tools. It'd actually be really funny to have AI, to feed AI our most recent podcast and then have AI do a podcast. So if any listeners know how to do that, um, we are here for it. And if you all have like the subscriptions or if it's free, but like Steve and I just don't know how to do it. If there are any good prompt engineers out there, we would gladly run a AI podcast of the growth equation. Um, I think that everyone would enjoy it. So if anyone wants to do that, um, you have our permission, just send us a link to the, the AI podcast. We'll know that it's hallucinating when um, I open up with like, uh, you know, every week I get 10 pounds stronger. It's like the starting strength program. You know, it's like, just add five pounds every week. And the knock on that is always like, that means that you can bench press like 400 pounds after one year of training, which no one can do. So it would be pretty funny to see what AI comes up with. All right, there we go. It's an RFP, an RFP. Go, go create the AI growth equation podcast and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll gladly publish it. <laughs> All right, well, with that, hopefully someone does that. Reach out if you can. And uh, thanks for listening.